Well, good evening. Let's begin in Ephesians chapter 6. And as you're turning back to Ephesians chapter 6, let me begin by saying, you came back. I'm always surprised when people come back. Thank you for coming back. Thank you again for the opportunity to be here and to share in, in your work, to share in your lives. Uh, Amberly and I have had a great day that has been full of love and kindness and blessings, and so we thank you. In Ephesians, the sixth chapter, we read, beginning in verse 10, <clears throat> Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord. And in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. But against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age. Against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore... Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Tonight, as we think about the expression in the evil day that we find in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13, and as we consider lessons from the context of that expression in the evil day, this is the lesson of the hour, and this is what I encourage you to take away from all of this this evening. Life in Christ is not lived on a playground. It is lived on a battlefield. You're not going to hear about this on CNN or Fox News or MSNBC Live. Beneath Surface appearances, an unseen spiritual battle is raging. When we look at this text in its context, in chapter 2, verse 20, or chapter 2, verse 2, we're introduced to the prince of the power of the air. He's referred to as the devil in chapter 4, verse 27, and in chapter 6, verse 11. The prince of the power of the air, the devil, in chapter 6, verses 11 and 12, the principalities and the powers and the rulers of the darkness of this age to be contrasted with the age to come. Of this age and spiritual host of wickedness in the heavenly places 
that are aligned with him, that are aligned with the enemy. They are scheming day after day, all day and all night to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus that has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And not only that, but to separate us from one another. And so in the book of Ephesians, what you have is this beautiful letter to this church in which they are called to to experience the reality of the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, chapter 4. But in chapter 6, we have this painful, abrupt shock that our lives in Christ are not going to be lived on a playground, but rather they're going to be lived on a battlefield. And if we don't recognize that, then we will not stand. We will fall. I think one of the things that we need to recognize as Christians in 2023 is the truth that Jesus communicated to the apostles in John the 16th chapter and in verse 33. He would say to them, these things I have spoken to you that that in me you may have peace. We are not going to ever have peace with the enemy. We are never going to experience peace in this world because 1 John 5, 19 communicates to us that this world, that the whole of this world lies under the sway, the influence of the devil. In Revelation 12, where we're given all this background on the devil himself, on our enemy, on the serpent, on the great fiery red dragon, one of the things that we read in Revelation 12 about him is that he deceives the whole world. We are in the world. We are in the realm. You and me and and me and you, all of us, we are in the world that he deceives in. We are in the world that lies under the sway of the wicked one. And here is what God did for us in Jesus. He became flesh and he dwelt among us. He entered into our experience in our likeness. And he says, listen, these things I have spoken to you that you may have peace in me, in the world you will have. You will have tribulation. And I love that that's the word that Jesus chose to use in John 16, verse 33, because it's just a word that simply means pressure. And pressure comes in all sorts of different forms. And the deceiver deceives us through his appearance. He deceives us through his words. And and in his deceptions, he puts pressure on our thinking and he puts pressure on, on our speech and he puts pressure on our behavior. He puts pressure into our minds and and on our hearts. And Jesus would say to us in John 16, verse 33, listen, undisturbed tranquility is not of this world. It wasn't his experience, and it won't be ours. In the book of Ephesians, there is no biography of the devil. There's no account of, of the origins of the forces of darkness. There is only the assumption that the devil is. There's a movie that made this quote famous, and if you Google it and try to get to the bottom of it, you'll be like me, and you'll find this French philosopher might have said it before it was in the movie. But the line that that was made famous in our popular culture is that the greatest trick that the devil pulled 
on the world was convincing the world that he doesn't exist. And that is why we began this morning by considering the lesson about the enemy. In the book of Ephesians, we have no biography of the devil. We have no account of the origins of the forces of darkness. We are just thrown into this narrative in which the plot line is there is an enemy that is seeking our destruction. And so the purpose of the letter to the Ephesians is not to satisfy their curiosity about these things or or to satisfy our curiosity, but to warn them and to warn us of their hostility and to teach us how to overcome them. And so as we think about 611, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the the wiles or, or, or the schemes of the devil. We need to understand that the devil does scheme. And first and foremost, number one, he schemes to convince us that he, the devil, doesn't exist. And so you need to listen to me very carefully because I'm what, to, what I'm about to say is not what I believe. What I'm about to say is what the devil schemes to do. He schemes to convince us that there is no devil. That there are no spiritual beings that are scheming against us. And as he schemes to convince us of of that falsehood, what he is seeking to replace that with is the idea that it's just us. It's just you and it's just me and it's just him and it's just her. And so because it's just us, it's up to us to fix all these problems that we see around about us. It's up to us to fix all these problems around that, that we created. Because it's just us. He schemes to convince us that there's nothing beyond what we can see. So there's no devil, there's no God, it's just us. He schemes to convince us that our struggle is with flesh and blood, that our struggle is with human beings, that our struggle is with males and females and theys and thems. Peoples of every nation, tribe, and tongue, because there is nothing besides us. Do you know anybody that's been deceived into believing that? Yeah, me too. And that explains a lot about why the world looks the way that it does. The devil schemes number two to convince us that our lives are about us. Again, this is not what I believe. This is what he schemes to do. And so he schemes to convince us that there was nothing before me. There was nothing before I was born and there will be nothing after me when I die. That I just have one life to live and I better get busy living it. And so go go live it. Think your thoughts and say your words and do whatever you want to do because it's, it's just you and it's just you for a short period of time. He schemes to convince us that our life is about me. It's about my person. It's about my work. It's about my strength. It's about my might. And in that falsehood, he is is seeking to convince me that because it's just me, then it's all about me. And because it's all about me, then it's all up to me. In other words, he schemes to convince me that there's no devil deceiving me. It's just me. There's no enemy seeking my destruction. It's just me. There's there's no spiritual host in the wicked, in in, in the heavenly places seeking to, to destroy me. It's just me. And because there is no God, or because there is no devil, there's no God to help. And so it's just you. 
Do you know anybody that's accepted that lie? I'll tell you what that lie will do to your faith. It'll kill it. Because if you, if you believe that, that everything in your life, that it's all about you and it's all up to you, then I'll, I'll tell you what you're going to ultimately do. You're going to hit rock bottom. Because at some point in your life, you are going to come to the realization that you have some limitations and that there are just some things that you can't do and that you need some help to accept this lies to lose heart and to give up on God and to replace the things of God with the things of the devil and the things of the world. And number three, as we think about the evil day that we live in and we think about his scheming, number three, he schemes to convince us that things matter more than the gospel. You know, Jesus talked about that some things matter more than other things. He talked about the weightier matters of the law, and he didn't say that those lesser things didn't matter. He just said that, yeah, there are some things that are, that are, that are weightier. And then the Spirit comes along in 1 Corinthians 15, and he, and he tells the Apostle Paul, here's what I want you to tell the church at Corinth. I want you to tell the church at Corinth that there is something that's of first importance. And what's of first importance is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And he had already told them that he understood that in, in the first three chapters of 1 Corinthians because he told them, he said, when I came into you, I, I determined not to know anything among you except the person and the work of Jesus Christ. I determined not to know anything among you except Christ and him crucified. We preach Christ and him crucified. And so here's where the devil comes into our lives and he says, okay, let's scheme about that. And this is what he tries to convince us of. There is no gospel of Christ because Jesus was just a man. Jesus, yeah, he's a historical figure and he lived in the first century and he died on a cross, but a lot of Jews died on a cross in the first century. The Romans crucified a lot of Jews and this Jesus, he was just a man. He was a failed man who got himself killed on a cross because of his ridiculous claims. That's why he died. Because he claimed to be God. He claimed to be deity. And as we all know, there is no God. There is no deity. And that's why he died. Because he was a liar. And then the devil says, okay, the Bible, this book that you care so much about and that you, that you read, encourage other people to read, it's just a collection of myths. There's nothing to that. It's just a bunch of fictitial, fictional stories for people who cannot cope with reality. Who, who need a crutch to hobble through life on. That's all this book is. And so the devil schemes and he deceives and he lies and he says, this life is all there is. This world is all there is. Therefore, live according to that. Think accordingly to that and act accordingly. And Ephesians 6, 10 through, 10 through 18, it bursts into our lives and it serves them and us as a stirring call to arms. We are at war. And our enemy is formidable. He's not a joke. He's not telling jokes. He's not attempting to be our friend. He is absolute bent on our destruction. And he has some, he has some help. He's not alone in that. That's the point of verse 12. And what Ephesians 6, 10 through 18 is telling us, because of the tense of the language, the present tense of all of this, is that we are at war and there's not going to be any cessation of hostilities. There's not going to be any temporary truces. There aren't going to be any ceasefires until the end of life 
or the end of time. And all of that, interestingly enough, is in the first word of verse 10. And so in my New King James Version, the first word of verse 10 is, is translated finally. But if you, if you look that word up and, and look at some Greek dictionaries and different things that have been said about that word, the word that's translated finally in, 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 the, in the Greek, it could be translated henceforward. Like one of the literal meanings of the word finally is for the remaining time. Just let that wash over you for a second. For the remaining time, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Well, why? Well, because the devil is wily and he has some help and he's seeking to separate you from God. He's seeking to separate you from one another. And unless you strengthen yourself in the Lord and in the power of his might, unless you put on the armor that he has designed for you, then you will not be able to stand. You cannot go it alone without him and successfully overcome this enemy. It is not possible to do. Someone used an illustration one time about how a prideful person said to the devil, hit me with your best shot. And it was one of the most effective strategies in dealing with the devil because the devil was confused about where he should start because there were so many openings that he could attack this person. We cannot have the posture toward the devil, hit me with your best shot. Because hit you, he will. And separate you from God, he will. If you are not strong in the power of the Lord and in his might, and if you do not have the armor on. And so here's what I think the truth of Ephesians 6 verse 10 is saying to us when it uses that word that literally means for the remaining time. What that means is that from the time you obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, the enemy is going to try to separate you from him. You ever known anybody that obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ and then their, and then their life just got proportionally worse after that? I mean, I've known a lot of people that, you know, their experience after they obeyed the gospel was, was not what they anticipated. They just thought they were going to go on their way rejoicing like the Ethiopian eunuch. It was just going to be blue skies and rainbows and, you know, joy to the world, the Lord has come and all that. And that is not the reality of of any of our lives, really, but especially for some. And so Jesus would talk about in Matthew 10, hey, there are going to be people that are going to love their, their mother or their father more than me or their brother or sister, and you, 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 you have to love me above all else. And so sometimes when we obey the gospel and we begin following the Lord, that is when the tribulation that Jesus talked about, that is when the pressure that Jesus talked about, that's when it intensifies the most. And that's what Jesus talked about in the parable of the sword. There are going to be people that they're not going to respond to the word at all, but other people, they're going to be faithful for a little while. But pressure is going to come, and then the cares of the world are going to choke it out, and, the, and, and there'll be some who abide, and as a result of their abiding, they will bear fruit. But I have known a lot of Christians that 
They were on fire for the Lord when they obeyed the gospel. And then a little pressure came, a little tribulation came, a little wily devil and scheming devil and principalities came and it just completely undid them. And so this is very important for us to understand. This is very important for for me to understand, you to understand, but as we're raising our children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, I mean, that's how chapter 6 began. We, we have to teach our children that if you're going to be a Christian, there's going to be a cost to pay. And we have to teach them to count the cost, and we have to teach them that, listen, there is more to life than just having fun. We live in a culture that is just, Fun is its God. We have just idolized fun to the point that our entire lives revolve around going to the playground so that we can have fun. And so everything just revolves around the fun thing that we're going to do and the next fun thing that we're going to do. And all that some of us seem to care about in this life is being happy. And I want to tell you, if God has called his people to happiness... And he has promised to bless that. He is doing an awful job at blessing us with happiness. And the fact of the matter is, God hadn't called us to happiness in this life. He's called us to holiness. And sometimes you have to choose holiness over happiness. Happiness has to do with what makes you happy. And sometimes there are some things in your life that are making you happy that you need to repent of. They shouldn't be making you happy. The focal point of our life is to be Jesus. Everything is to revolve around him to the glory of God the Father. And the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives from the inside out is to conform us to the image of Jesus. And in order to be conformed to his image, beloved, we are going to have to experience some pressure. (laughs) We are going to have to experience some of the refiner's fire that will melt away like dross, the impurities and the unholy things in our individual lives that aren't Jesus, that don't reflect his glory, that don't reflect his holiness. Our lives are not lived on a playground. They are lived on a battlefield. And so, yeah, Jesus talked about peace in John 16, 33, and he talks about peace in Ephesians 2. There's a peace that is talked about in chapter 2, verses 11 through 18, But the peace that God has has made possible for us, he's made that possible through Jesus' cross. There's no peace without the death of Jesus. The peace which God has made through Christ's cross is to be experienced only in the midst of a relentless struggle against evil. And that is one of the blessings of the local church because what we do in the context of this relationship is we see other people who are in the struggle, who are at war, and who are fighting, who are obeying the commands that we see in Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. And when I see that in you, that encourages me. When I see the Lord at work in you and in your life and in your family, that encourages me. When I, when I came here the first time in 2013, I, I was hurting. There were things that were happening in my life that were discouraging me. And I came here and sat down in the auditorium of this building in 2013, and we started singing. 
and it encouraged me. The way this church listened, the comments that were made to me during the week, the kind words that were said, people turning to the scriptures, reading the scriptures. I went home and told my wife, and she said, I don't know if that, you're exaggerating. Came back in 2018, same thing. She got to come with me this time. We get in the car this morning after this morning's service, and the only thing that she could say was, wow. Wow. That's why God's brought us together in community, so that we can be that for one another. So that we can sing with the Spirit and in the understanding and encourage one another as we glorify God. And so as we think about our struggle, it's our struggle, isn't it? It's mine, it's yours, it's our collective struggle. For this struggle, the strength and the power and the might of the one Lord, the one God and Father, and the one Spirit are indispensable. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. We have an enemy, an adversary, an accuser, and he has his forces, and they're powerful, and they're wicked, and they're cunning. And to deny this reality is to expose ourselves to more of his subtlety. I mean, over the last three years, we have seen everybody under the sun all over the world lie to us day and night about everything. Why are we surprised by that? The whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one, and he is a murderer and a liar from the beginning. Why would we think that the world would tell us the truth about anything? We don't need to be deceived about the world in which we live. And without the Lord, without God, without the Spirit, you're going to be overcome and you're going to be defeated and you're going to be lost. But in the strength and power of the Lord's might, wearing the whole armor of God, praying in the Spirit, you will stand against the schemes of the devil. You will be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. I I love that. You know, the, the implication of this is It's going to end. There's going to be a completion to it. You know, these are are enemies of this age, verse 12. There's an age to come in which these enemies are no more. And and there's coming a day in which which we're not going to have to fight anymore. And having done all, we, we will be able to stand with the one who stood, with the one who is standing in the present tense on Mount Zion. Be strong in the Lord in 6.10. Look at that again. Finally, brethren, be strong in the Lord. From, for the remaining time, brethren, be, be strong in the Lord. That expression is, is passive present. For all of you who know more about Greek and English and all that than I do. It's in passive present. And so what, what difference does that make? Well, what difference it makes is, is it could literally be translated, strengthen yourselves in the Lord. I tell you when you need to do that, you need to do that when you get up in the morning. And you need to do that throughout your morning, and you need to do that at lunchtime, and you need to do that throughout the afternoon, and you need to do that at night. You need to live your day within the context of the evil day, strengthening yourself in the Lord. Turn back to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to read a couple of verses in chapter 1. In 610, we've been called to to strengthen ourselves in the Lord and in the power of His might. And those words in 610, in the power of His might, they're the same words in 119. And so in chapter 119, those words are used in the context of a prayer. And the prayer of Ephesians chapter 1 is that we would know 
that we would see and that we would experience the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe. You know, God works in everyone's life, but he works in the lives of his children in very special, unique ways. He is the God of all, but John chapter 1, there are those who have been given the right to be called the children of God, those who believe. And so those who believe and are born again and who are adopted into the family of God, the prayer is that we would know and see and experience the exceeding greatness of His power toward us and that this would be according to the working of His mighty power, which He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. We need to pray that prayer. We need to pray that prayer for ourselves. We need to pray that prayer for our brothers and sisters in Christ that we would know and see and experience His power in time. The emphasis of the phrase, I I think this is so important. I think it's so encouraging to see this. When you go back to 611, the emphasis of the phrase, the whole armor of God, is on the, the divineness, if you will, of the outfit. Do you see that? You know, why do we call ourselves a church of Christ? Well, because of what the words mean and what they're communicating. And so a church, a, a, a called out assembly of people, Christ, of course, we understand that, that that's the Lord's anointed, the Messiah, the Christ of God, Jesus of. What does that word of mean? It means belonging to. So what are we communicating with that expression on our sign? We're communicating that that we believe that we are people who belong to Jesus. The whole armor of God. The armor belongs to Him. He is the divine architect of the armor. The equipment, if you will, is forged and it is furnished by God himself. Now, why does that matter? Well, it matters for a couple of practical reasons, but as we think about the evil day in our lives not being lived on a playground but being lived on a battlefield, in heaven we will be immortally arrayed. That's the point of 1 Corinthians 15, Philippians 3, 20 and 21, 1 Peter 3. We don't know what our glorified body is going is gonna to look like, feel like, but we know that it's going to be like Jesus's. He is the first fruits of the resurrection. And so when we read about our ultimate victory in the book of Revelation, what we see is that the the redeemed of all the ages, that they are in eternity and they are arrayed, arrayed, if you will, in robes, robes of glory. In heaven we will be immortally arrayed in robes of glory. On earth we are clothed in God's armor. We're not wearing t-shirts and shorts and tennis shoes to the playground. We are clothed in His truth, 
in His righteousness, in His good news of peace, in His one faith, in His salvation, in His word. And so, practically speaking, by way of encouragement, putting on the whole armor of God, beloved, is not a mechanical operation. It is itself an act of faith in which we express our dependence upon God. We recognize the battle that we have chosen to participate in because we've chosen him. And we recognize that we are under attack and that we need him. We need his strength. We need his power. And so what God is telling us is, look, I'm here to help you. Jesus is saying, listen, I'm the captain of your salvation and I'm the commander of the armies of the Lord, of the Lord of hosts, of Yahweh of hosts. This is who I am. And I have forged and fashioned this armor for you. And by faith, by faith, we lay hold of the power of God. And we put on the whole armor of God. And I want you to watch what what we are to do after by faith. We just rely on him. And by faith, we armor up. And after we have taken up the whole armor of God, verse 13... After we have girded our waist with truth and put on the breastplate of righteousness and shod our feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, and after we have taken the shield of faith and after we have taken the sword of the Spirit, look what we're to do in verse 18. We are to pray. Prayer is never to be an afterthought in our daily battle with our enemy. After we armor up, the first thing that we are to do is to pray. To pray with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplications for all the saints. I don't think that there is anything more special that you can say to another person and mean it. And it be true and genuine and authentic than to say to them, I love you. But number two, when you say to another person, I am praying for you. That is special. That is meaningful. That's encouraging. And I'll tell you why. Because God is real. And he has a throne of grace. And Jesus is seated at his right hand. He ever lives to make intercession for us. He's our one mediator. Romans the 8th chapter verse 26. As you take what we're told in Romans 8 26 and you seek to harmonize it with Ephesians 6 18 that we're to, to pray in the spirit. We're to pray always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit. We're to be filled and guided by the one spirit and we're to be conscious of, we're to be conscious of the Holy Spirit's intercession for us with groanings which cannot be honored. When we pray as the people of God, our Father in heaven listens. Our Jesus intercedes, the Holy Spirit mediates and God acts. He responds to our prayers. 
and in full assurance of faith, if we come to understand and to believe those things, then we'll just naturally talk to our God and Father in heaven and we'll just naturally call upon Jesus to make intercession for us and the Holy Spirit to intercede for us. And so what we've been called to do is to pray at all times, to pray regularly and consistently with all prayer and supplication. For talking to God, it it takes many and varied forms. There are times in which we pray together as, as an assembly, but there are other times like Nehemiah when we're in these situations in the evil day and we have an opportunity before somebody who is in a position of power to do something that would be a blessing to us to stand before this person and not bow our heads and to close our eyes, but to pray, to talk to God while we're standing before this powerful person and to call upon God to simply help us and help Nehemiah, he did. And help you, he will, with all perseverance. Like good soldiers, we need to keep alert, never giving up or sleeping spiritually, but to be watchful. And so when we read about Jesus in, 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 in Matthew 13 talking about the enemy, you know what he says in that parable before he explains it? He says that while men slept, an enemy snuck in and wreaked habit. And when he explains that, he says, the enemy is the devil. Like good soldiers, we need to keep alert, never giving up or sleeping spiritual, but being watchful, making supplication for all the saints, asking God to help all, not some of the saints, is one of the things that we can do for one another. And then in 19 and 20, for me, Paul says to the Ephesian church, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in change that I that I may speak it boldly as I ought to speak. Paul asked the Ephesians to pray for him specifically. But notice what he doesn't ask them to pray. You know, the context of, of Ephesians and, and, and Colossians and Philemon is that in Philippians, I know there was another one, that Paul was in prison. And in none of those letters does he say to those churches, here's what I need you to do for me. I need you to pray that I get out of this, that I get out of this jail. And what we see in the, in, in the book of Acts is that every time that Paul found himself in a place that he didn't want to be in, where he was experiencing tremendous tribulation, experienced uh, tremendous pleasure, what we see him do in all those situations is he takes the opportunity to, to preach Christ to whoever he has the opportunity to preach Christ to. And so Paul asked the Ephesians to pray for him specifically, but he doesn't ask them to pray that he would be freed from the Roman prison from which he wrote to them. Paul asked the Ephesians to pray that he might have freedom of speech to make known the mystery of the gospel, freedom to preach Christ with clarity and courage. And so why would he do that? Because he believed what the Spirit had him write in 1 Corinthians 15, that of first importance to Paul. He wasn't just giving lip service to what he had written by inspiration of the Holy Spirit of first importance to Paul was preaching Christ and him crucified because he understood by inspiration that the enemy is not being in prison. The enemy is not the injustice of being in prison for a crime you didn't commit. The enemy, the definitive article enemy is the devil and the definitive problem in your life is sin and the only solution to overcoming the enemy and the problem of sin is Jesus. And there is a judgment that is coming that will determine where one spends eternity. 
And so why do we preach Christ and Him crucified? Because He is our peace. And it is through Him that we can be at peace with God. And it is through Him that we can experience peace within. And it is through Him that as much as lies within us, we can live peaceably with all men. And so what would the devil do in 2023? He would attempt to deceive us through his appearance and through his words to distract us from preaching Christ and him crucified, from carrying out the great commission in our generation. David is described in Acts chapter 13 as as a person who served his generation well. And as we take that expression and we apply it to life in Christ, what does serving our generation look like? It looks like taking the gospel to every creature under heaven the way they did it in the first century according to Colossians chapter 1. In the first century, in 30 years, every creature under heaven had the opportunity to hear the gospel. Why? Because the early Christians believed the the Great Commission and they believed that it was of first importance and that everybody had sin that needed to be forgiven of and that everybody was fighting a battle whether they knew it or not. And they might not know because they had been deceived by the enemy. And so why would they preach Christ and Him crucified? Because that's the truth that delivers one into the freedom that Jesus spoke about in John 8. The truth will set you free. It'll set you free from the enemy, from deception, from sin and the consequences of sin. And so, as we think about all this tonight and bring all this to a conclusion, if we as the saints, if we as the faithful in Christ Jesus, the elect of God, the adopted sons and daughters of God, if we as those who have been accepted in the beloved, the redeemed, as we believers who have been sealed and filled with the Holy Spirit of God, if we do not put first importance on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, who will? Who will? And if we don't, what will become of us? And what will become of our kids? And what will become of our local church? And what will become of our of our city and our county and our state and our country. The way that they turned the world upside down in the first century was by preaching Jesus and saying to everybody who lived in the Roman Empire, there is another king and his name is Jesus. And it is through that name and that person, through him and him alone, that we can be saved. Do we believe that tonight? And if we do believe that, then what are we doing about it? I think the first thing that we need to recognize in Christ is that we don't live our lives on a playground. We live them on a battlefield. And once we internalize that, then we can begin to glorify God by being strong in Him and in His power. We can trust in Him and in His armor to defend us. In the evil day, we can stand and beloved, having done all. We too can stand with Jesus on Mount Zion. We have not come to Mount Sinai in which there was thunder and smoke and fear, but we have come to to Mount Zion. Our Jesus has called us to fight. He's called us to armor up and to fight. Beloved, we do not fight for victory. We fight from 
victory. The war is over and Jesus won. And so what we face in our lives are just these little battles, these little skirmishes until he comes. And when he comes, then the devil is going to be cast into the bottomless pit forever and ever. And all of those who chose to be his child are going with him. And we can avoid all of that by fighting from the victory that we have in Christ Jesus. Is that your hope tonight? It can be. There's just absolutely nothing special about me or any of these other members of this church that have obeyed the gospel. There's just nothing special about us. The one that is special is Him. The one that is special is the one that we have come to in full assurance of faith, confessing that we need Him. We need His person and we need His work. And by grace, He has accepted us. And by grace, He will accept you too. And I'll tell you what we all need to be right serious about. If the Lord accepts somebody, we need to accept them too. If the Lord loves somebody, then we need to love them too. And I'll tell you who He, who he accepts and who He loves. Those who believe... Do you believe tonight? Well, if you believe in Him and that He is ready and willing to forgive you of your sins, then get out of your way and come to Him by faith. He will receive you and forgive you and then He will outfit you with armor. It's not like Saul's armor. Remember when David went in there and Saul said, Here, take my armor and go fight, the, go fight the devil of your day. Go fight Goliath. And he tried that armor on and it didn't fit. And so what did he do? He left it behind and he went in the strength of the Lord and in the power of his might and he slew Goliath. And we can slay the giants in our lives in the same exact way by faith. Do you believe that tonight? If so, won't you come and obey the gospel and be forgiven of your sins? If you are a child of God, but you've been spending all of your day on the playground, it's time to grow up. It's time to grow up and armor up so that you can stand. And having done all, stand. Won't you come while we encourage you with this song?